Welcome to the Tokyo AI Podcast. With me, Matt Bigelow. So, why am I doing this? Exactamundo. Uh, we're in the middle of a so-called pandemic, the COVID-19, uh, however you want to call it, multiple names. And I find myself out of work. And we're in, this is, what date is it? April 16th, today, 2020. And I had uh, just finished up a contract at a major telecom uh, company in Tokyo, where I was there for about four and a half years. And I built a school there to help the uh, engineers uh, communicate better, basically, and also the uh, vice presidents. And it's a major, one of the major telecom companies in Japan. I was there for about four and a half years, starting in about 2015. And that's when um, AI and IoT really started to pick up. And IoT, not so much. It's more of the secret sauce, which is harder to, you know, get your hands on. Um, we all know what Coca-Cola tastes like, but we don't know how to make it. That's kind of what IoT is. And so the management there asked me to put together a curriculum to help their AI engineers, network engineers, um, you know, deal with enterprise solutions. And uh, I had come out of a, a teaching background in the um, in the public sector, no, private sector, sorry, private sector for about eight years, training interpreters, uh, researching. Uh, we had a, a, a relationship with BBC News and CNN News. Say what you want about them now in 2020, but in 2008, you know, different story back then. Um, and so I'd been used to researching whatever, a huge amount of topics. And then after developing that AI school for the AI engineers and so on at uh, the telecom company, um, the contract ended coincidentally at the same time the coronavirus started to surge up in everybody's lives. So while I'm waiting for work, I've decided to start a podcast, another podcast. Uh, other podcasts I've been a part of include uh, Maddie B Files and the ongoing Japan What podcast. And you can find all these at MatthewPMBigelow.com. And hopefully this will be on iTunes and whatever soon enough. So my research in AI and what made me um, have a unique perspective on AI is that uh, I had to present materials to um, ex uh, people doing experimentation with radio frequencies, people um, doing uh, mass rollouts of uh, Wi-Fi products, um, people that studied uh, Wi-Fi wireless technology in university, um, people that put together uh, professional telecom networks, and then as well as the sort of the, uh, the not the board members, but below the board members. So by, ex by, by presenting these people with materials for four and a half years, I could feedback and iterate what was going on with, with my research and, and presentations. And the more they liked it, the more I would pursue that angle. Um, so it's not based on popularity. It was based on the reaction of the people that are doing it, if that makes sense. And in that time, I started uh, transcribing speeches by Julian Assange uh, when he came out a few years ago and, and warned the world about um, AI, things like lateral uh, data streams or data archives, 
um, keywords like surveillance, capitalism, and so on. And I transcribed his speech and I started looking up the key vocabulary and all of these companies started popping up at me that involved massive amounts of um, AI camera networks connected to the cloud that offer tailor-made solutions from gas stations to stadiums on how to um, more uh, properly defend themselves against possible attacks or sell things by providing coupons via wireless beacons to customers at a stadium who might want a hot dog or something like that. Um, so surveillance capitalism is definitely going to be a key point of this podcast. Uh, another thing that uh, led me into the world of AI was Kai-Fu Lee, the CEO of Sinovation Ventures. He put out a book called um, China, Silicon Valley, and the New World Order. And it talked about how um, China basically poured a whole bunch of R&D into mobile internet to then create a cashless society. He doesn't talk a lot about the social credit system there, but that book really opened my eyes onto how AI and algorithms are being used as a key component of a, of a business strategy. And depending on the type of business or the type of job, AI will either replace that job or help to automate jobs within a job to make a job easier to do. And I took his uh, business strategy and uh, implemented it into my school, and it, and it actually worked really well. Um, uh, my reactions got better, and, and uh, I iterated it based on a super billionaire's um, ideas that he he did, and and uh, you know passed it on via the book to me, and I made some more money that way. Got a raise as well. And then what's the third one? Um, so Julian Assange, and then oh yes, um, a uh, a leaked document um, associated with uh, retired general. Bombardier, I can't remember that title, uh, Robert Spaulding came out called a secure 5G. And it was a, you know, quote unquote leaked document that um, portrayed a, a possible 5G AI uh, data war, cyber war between China and America, where China built up a huge amount of data behind its firewall and now can mine that data as well as use American data and Google data to understand um, what people are doing in real time. And America doesn't have access to that data. And as Huawei received a $100 billion loan or whatever it's called, subsidy from the Chinese Communist Party, they were able to offer uh, better products at, at, at lesser prices to um, enterprise companies all around the world. And it's putting America at a huge disadvantage. So by combining these things, I um, developed a, a unique perspective on artificial intelligence where uh, I know that there's a lot of um, threats based on what people think. I don't believe in the whole um, uh, robot takeover. I mean, robots in terms of uh, you know science fiction movies and Terminator and Skynet and all that, that's kind of Hollywood... Uh, preemptively 
sending people a message of what AI is supposed to be. But there is a science fiction aspect to um, artificial intelligence, and I want to engage that theory. I also like the idea of the markets. I've come to realize that uh, markets is a way for companies and consumers to interact with each other as an interface. And based on the success of the product or service in the market, it kind of means that there's a, a human interest in there. And so if you don't interact with the market, you don't interact with the consumer market. If you don't interact with the consumers, you're not interacting with people. So that's a very interesting aspect to it as well. And I also like the idea of the research and development aspect because the research is often very kooky or we don't understand how it's going to be applied. But the application of it is a few years down the road. Um, for example, uh, this whole uh, idea of deep fakes. For me, I'm not really too scared about it. Uh, for me, a deep fake is an engineer that um, uses a, a video of Obama uh, to, uh, you know, change what Obama said or change his face in a particular way. Everyone goes, oh, my God, in the future we won't know who Obama is. But really what happens a few years later is that engineer, the engineering team, sells that algorithm or sells that that service to a video game company or a social media company where now you can change your face to make it look like an Obama face or something like that. So the research side is often very scary, but the market application can be just kind of goofy social media horse crap. Um, so by looking at the research, you can tell what's going to happen in the future. And by looking at the markets, you can understand what's happening right now. And by engaging in the science fiction, you can still have fun. And that's uh, kind of the whole point of it. So I don't know where this podcast is going to go. I'd like to do some interviews with the um, startup community in Tokyo. I know that there is a startup podcast, but, you know, podcasts are so ubiquitous nowadays. I often compare it to bands. It's like uh, if I play a guitar and I play a guitar in a cafe and I'm the only guitar player in town, if somebody else comes with a guitar and starts playing in the cafe, I might feel threatened. But it's within totally somebody's legitimate grounds to learn guitar and play guitars in a cafe. And that's how I view the podcast as well. Like a band, you have to compete with other bands. And if you're the only band in town, well, you're, only, you're, you're, you're only the only band in town for so long before someone else goes, hey, you know what? Being in a band is awesome, and I want to be in a band too. And uh, I am a musician, by the way. I've been in tons of bands. Uh, but as I get older... Uh, the idea of going out at night and listening to a whole bunch of people um, shout at me about politics while playing acoustic guitar becomes less and less appealing. So I'm uh, venturing off into other grounds. Uh, but I did um, write that song for the intro. Yeah, this one. It's pretty easy, actually. Not too difficult. So today for the first episode, I just want to review um, some uh, products. And I don't want to be... The um the news guy, the guy who's like, here's the latest and here's the greatest. Um, most of the time, news people don't really understand what they're talking about. So they just kind of go in and they drop in and then they try to get the, the sources as quickly as possible and then get the hell out of Dodge. Um, for me, what I'd prefer to do is kind of look at um, certain companies or certain ideas or certain applications. doesn't have to be the latest but it has to be something maybe of interest. And uh, for today, I just chose a couple of things. So um, the first one's going to be uh, the Israeli coronavirus. So this is Diagnostic.ai's technology. 
streamlines the process of detecting, diagnosing, and tracking infectious diseases by automating the DNA analysis step. So notice how that this is not an AI program that's automatically going to find out who has coronavirus or not, but it's an AI that automates a step in the process and probably uses a um, digital framework then distributes the information through a cloud service so that people get the information more quickly. Um, so this comes to us from Forbes, and I'm going to put the links. I'm going to put. I'm going to put the links to what I'm talking about onto my website at matthewpmbigelow.com, and you'll be able to find the uh, Tokyo AI podcast link. Tokyo AI podcast, Japan AI podcast. I think both are still available. Should I call it both? The Japan Tokyo AI podcast. <laughs> and then where's the consumer market going to go? All right. So let's begin. So this comes to us from Forbes, uh, and I'll just read a little bit here. The Israeli Ministry of Health recently launched a nationwide scheme that does daily monitoring of corona-related symptoms of the population by using Diagnostic Robotics Digital Risk Assessment and Monitoring Platform for COVID-19. The platform, which analyzes the patient's clinical symptoms and underlying health status, generates a personalized AI-based risk profile for COVID-19, in addition to providing next-step guidance. The information is delivered as, quote, red flags, unquote, to health authorities, creating a heat map of corona hotspots, which in turn helps medical services identify which regions need intensive care. The diagnostic robotic solution leverages data provided by the public remotely, helping individuals determine the right course of action while minimizing direct contact with medical teams, which also eases the burden on healthcare staff. So there we go. So that's a key point there. Um, we're seeing a lot of people uh, using computer models, and then they put in their own basis inputs for those computer models. We don't really know what they are. And then those computer models get generated, and then they say, well, by uh, next week, 700 million people might die. We have to flatten the curve, people. And everyone goes, oh, my God. But these are just computer models, and we're not seeing a lot of the computer models for the COVID-19 come to fruition. So by having um, an automated step, which will uh, tabulate the data uh, and then distribute that data in real time so that people can go, oh, over here are a bunch of possible cases. Let's, let's, let's put the beds there. Let's, let's deliver the, um, the, uh, the goods to that area, a heat map of Corona hotspots. Now, of course, uh, because we don't really know much about the coronavirus, it's kind of hard to automate something that we don't know much about. So this could create a possible, you know, false positives or false negatives, where um, where if you have uh, um, in incorrect clinical data affecting the inputs of the AI service, and if people trust the AI service too much, it's possible to um, have a uh, a bias in the system where people trust a system but don't uh, understand that possible mm, bad data is seeping into its guts. Uh, it's, it's a lot less, it's a lot easier to have an automated system for something we know a lot about. Uh, for example, you know, uh, the f typical flu or typical um, cough or or um, a type of cancer and a type of age with a type of weight or something like that. With year-on-year -year data, uh, it becomes easier to predict what's going to happen next. But because this is the first year of the coronavirus, 
it's possible that uh, the doctors might input certain parameters that might not be relevant to COVID-19. So that's a risk in doing something like that. Now, another thing that's possible with this type of application for identifying hotspots, and this is where we kind of get controversial, and this is the idea of pan-surveillance capitalism versus mm, regulated or determined surveillance capitalism. So in my opinion, surveillance capital is capitalism is a kanshi uh, shihonshugi in Japanese is a technology over the horizon very soon coming into our lives. It's, it's already here, let's be honest. So I don't mind the idea of AI cameras, uh, if you do mind, and you're just going to be one of those people who said, I'll never use my credit card online in 1994. Uh, so we need to determine where and when it's applied. Now, if we take this idea of trying to uh, identify patients or identify the public at large, one idea is to um, input uh, artificial intelligence cameras into the light posts of a city, a, a so-called grid, a smart grid of artificial intelligence cameras. And the cameras can have multiple layers with thermal, facial recognition, gate recognition. So if we think about that, then if we have the parameters of the COVID-19, um, you know, maybe it slows people down when they walk or they start stumbling, their temperature increases, then the, um, the, the AI camera would be able to I basically identify the pixelated regions of a camera shot of a screen. And then by identifying certain gait patterns or temperature patterns with facial recognition and it recognizes your face and attaches that to your medical history, it, the AI camera could then alert an ambulance or something like that to come get you or to come check on you or something like that. Of course, this is a technology that can be hugely abused at the same time. What if uh, somebody changes the parameters of this or reduces a hacker, reduces the, um, the, the, the temperature check by a couple of degrees? Uh, so if you're above 38 degrees Celsius with a certain type of gate and a certain type of X or Y, uh, then the system works very well. But somebody hacks that system, reduces the temperature gauge by a few degrees, and all of a sudden your entire system uh, it becomes infected supposedly with COVID-19 patients. And then your bandwidth crashes and your system is down. So to do this pan-surveillance capitalism, which is the kind of a more of the Chinese approach, I don't like it. But having a specific surveillance capitalism approach is, for me, shogunai, which means you just can't be helped. If, if we're going to limit it, we have to limit it. Basically, I want to take this idea, like a wrestler, wrestle the technology to the ground, grab it by the neck, rip out its guts, and then reappropriate it so that it improves our lives rather than turns us into slaves, if that makes sense. Because um, right now, we would never use it for slavery. But, you know, 20, 30 years from now, some other crazy mofo gets in, a government takes over your your computer systems, and now they can do whatever they want with it. So the uh, the protecting the womb of time, what kind of future do you want to have in the for your for your children and your children's children? These are things we need to consider. Um, just like how we don't have cars everywhere, we limit them to roads. Uh, that way we don't have cars crashing through um, our windows in the middle of the night, if you're lucky. Not the best analogy. So um, so we could put the uh, cameras into 
uh, ubiquitous setting like light posts, which is possible, there are AI cameras that run off of the electromagnetic frequencies of lights. It, it's really easy to input. By the way, for the smart city, the light posts have a lot of applications. Or we could put the cameras in gateways, lobbies, security-sensitive areas, something like that. Um, a train station, if possible. So I'm not sure where it would be or who would even be in control of it. Or would you have different companies in control of different layers of, of, of the AI camera systems? Um, so there we go. Next. Uh, oh, just before I move on. So that company that I was talking about in the article in Forbes was Diagnostic.ai. There's two other medical uh, companies from Israel. In Israel is a leader in artificial intelligence. And some people are worried about how close Israel and China are getting in terms of doing some tie-ups. But because of this whole COVID-19 thing, not sure how long that's going to go. Who knows? The other two companies mentioned in that Forbes article is Clue Medical, C-L-E-W. And Vocalis Health, which analyzes people's vocal patterns. Uh, so if you're healthy and you have a healthy vocal pattern, the microphones will go, no problem. But if they register some sort of uh, pattern in the way people talk who have COVID-19 because it affects your lungs, um, then it would be able to possibly listen for COVID-19. You can imagine a whole bunch of tiny Alexa microphones flying around in some sort of smart dust in the future looking for, for, for the sick people. But again, uh, how, how, how far do we want to go with that? Uh, do you want to be like, well, if it makes everybody healthier, I don't mind having some shadowy government operation analyzing everyone's vocal patterns. It's what they're doing in China, and a lot of Uyghurs are getting locked up. Next is a Japanese smart-up smart up, start up, start up company called, uh, it's an AI camera system called VAC. VAC, V-A-A-K. Uh, all right, Japanese AI. So this is a camera system that's trying to move into the consumer market. So this isn't about um, finding out if you're sick or not. It's a camera system that tries to find shoplifters in the store. And it does so by uh, image recognition and computer vision. Um, computer vision is probably one of the most advanced and ready-made uh, IoT AI rollout services that's available at the moment for the general population. Now, the way this works, I've determined, is Pixel. Um, the, the camera is trained on identifying an action. And the, the clearer the, the camera is, the more pixels the camera is, the more clearly an action can be um, determined by an AI camera. So if you show a uh, AI camera um, somebody putting something into a bag enough times, eventually... The, the pixels will be able to um, be interpreted by a computer program as an action. So if you're smiling, it's going to understand that you're smiling and happy. If your eyes are darting back and forth, it's going to understand that somebody's eyes are darting back and forth. So if you're standing in front of a shelf for enough period of time and it registers your eyes are darting back and forth, it will raise the suspicion level to a certain percentage, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50. And then that might um, send a, a warning, an alert to a security operations center or to a clerk 
who can access that information via iPad. And then it says, you know, this person's in this aisle standing here. They're 30% suspicious. And it can also recognize your face, but not your name because it can take your biometric data and give your face a code associated to that biometric data. It's all about transferring image to code, sending that code through a wireless service to a device that can then interpret that code and then f you can then feed into where that camera is pointing and that way not all of the cameras and all of the devices are using all of the bandwidth at the same time. It minimizes the bandwidth, transfers actions to code, and then finds the right type of code to um, transfer to another device. And again, this staff member might see somebody is there and then they might go over and ask for them, ask for some help. Like, hey, can I help you? Or, or if somebody puts the object in their bag, that will then raise the suspicious level to 90% and that might trigger, you know, a security guard to come and stop them or even possibly call the police. Now we get into some other risky territory where if that person steals something and then their facial recognition is captured by that camera, the camera might be able to send that biometric data to a police station and then the police station might have a list of people that it shares like a, like a warrant list, and if that person is wanted for previous crimes, it might be able to send that person's information back uh, to the store or to a security guard or to a security operation, which would then take an action as appropriate. Again, how far do you want to go with that? Did you not pay your taxes last year for a couple of months and that puts you on a list? Or are you a violent offender and that puts you on a list? So what? how far do we want that surveillance capitalism to go? Maybe you're okay with violent offenders uh, uh, and wife abusers and, you know, and pedophiles being on that list. I sure am. But, you know, would I want the cops chasing you down for stealing a can of Coke because you didn't pay your taxes last year for a few months? I'm not sure. It'd be kind of funny to watch it on a CCTV camera when I'm drunk at home watching YouTube at 2 a.m. But is that a reality we want to live with day to day? Again, we don't really know. So that company is called VAC. And if you're wondering why um, so many new TVs are coming out with higher and higher pixelation, 4K cameras, 8K cameras, 16K cameras, it's, a lot of it has to do with the demand for surveillance capitalism and the demand that the AI cameras, the more pixels they have, the better they are able to identify with accuracy actions captured within a frame rate. So if you have 120 frame rate FPS, um, and an 8K camera in a well-lit space, or if it's a dark space, but you have an algorithm that can brighten up spaces uh, that are dark so that you can identify people's faces more accurately, um, that's why we have a lot more of these higher uh, pixelated cameras coming out these days. All right, and the last one will just be a quick one, uh, Tesla. One thing that, uh, oh, sorry, so that Japanese AI company was called VAC. VAC, V-A-A-K. Um, you know, I'm sure that was really pleasant for you to listen to. All right, as I'm sitting here in my three-piece suit in my Tokyo studio. So this uh, last one will just be a quick one about Tesla. We all know Tesla self-driving cars. Um, one of the reasons why their valuation is so high, in my opinion, is because of the super supercomputers inside of the cars. Recently, each Tesla comes with two supercomputers known as neural network accelerators. And these are um, computer chips designed by the Tesla team that are future ready. So they, it's, not, it's not planned obsolescence. It's, it's 
planned improvement. Your car will get better over time is how they're advertising their um, product at, at, at Elon Musk's general way of talking. Not, not his way of talking, but the way he's promoting it. So the, the neural network accelerators can take camera data, which is the cameras on the car, and process thousands of images per second. And there's about a million cars, uh, Tesla cars on the road right now, between 500,000 and a million. And the owners can opt into a program called Fleet Intelligence. And the Fleet Intelligence will basically activate the cars on the road finding errors so that the errors can be improved based on real events, not simulated data or computer models or projections. For example, if I'm driving my Tesla and I wish I had one and I and I and the t- car's on self-driving mode and it and it starts to veer off because it misses a it re, it misinterprets a road sign or a line in the road or a, or a crack in the road or a bush in the road and I have to take control of the car and, and just steer it back onto the path and then a few seconds later I re-engage the self-driving and everything's fine. That's the idea. The the amount of data being collected for each time the, the, the driver readjusts the car, that data will be sent from the car through the cloud to the Tesla engineers. And if that error is significant enough, the Tesla engineers will try to correct that action using a simulation. And they have the GPS, the location, the time, and the lighting, and the camera data based on that. Once the engineers feel like they've made an improvement, they can then send that improvement from their computers back through the cloud to the Tesla. And the Tesla will run that um, correction in shadow mode. And it will test the next time it runs through that GPS section where the driver had to take over because there was an error. And if, this is the idea, if the car performs better with the shadow mode enabled, it can then send that data back to the Tesla as security operation center, whatever they want to call it, the engineers, the engineers can say, okay, it seems like our correction is better. Let's activate that. And it will send the correction, not only to the car that made the mistake in the first time, but all of the cars who want to participate in this data sharing uh, plan, data sharing test, data sharing engagement system. And so the next time my, some other person's Tesla goes through that area, it won't make that mistake. And the same goes for my Tesla with that other car's mistakes. So all of the cars are updating all of the other cars with each other's mistakes so that the performance of the vehicles improves in real time in a fleet mentality. Wow. So that the idea is that your car gets better over time. Now, Tesla uh, is going to probably be part... This is another idea that the... uh, What's Elon Musk's rocket company called? I can't remember. I've watched so many of their videos. Holy shit. <laughs> What's it called? SpaceX. Thank you very much, brain. Um, SpaceX is launching all of these satellites to convert the atmosphere into like a blanket of satellites. And then the satellites can beam uh, internet down to ground. And it's also possible that in uh, certain cases, these Tesla cars might act as mobile base stations to help improve internet connections in areas where there might not be great internet connection. That's just more of like the SF fun side of what I'm thinking, but it's also a possibility. Um, And I think that's why 
their valuation so high. And the Tesla community is really passionate about these cars. On YouTube, hundreds of thousands of views on, on Teslarati and all of these other Twitter accounts and people updating with with reviews and and it's like a real experiment. That's what this whole thing is. And there's a certain passion behind it where it's not just somebody taking a taxi somewhere. It's somebody going, I have a Tesla. It can do all of these things. I'm going to make YouTube videos about it. It's going to improve my performance. And eventually the car will get better and better and better and better. And that's maybe why recently the Tesla was evaluated, uh, had a higher evaluation than a lot of major uh, automotive companies out there in the world. So that is going to be it for the first Japan AI, Tokyo AI. I think I like the Tokyo AI podcast name better. Uh, I could claim both, though. Who knows? Until the next person comes around with a podcast like this, that'll be that. So um, again, this podcast is, uh, this is episode one, reviewing some of the AI uh, applications, some of what I want to, you know, discuss as well. Um, Keep it in real life, but also explore the science fiction possibilities based on not Hollywood, but based on what is happening in the markets and kind of just having fun with some predictions as well. I don't want to just be reading the news and and talking to people about what type of machine learning algorithms are being uh, used for their uh, stock portfolio, even though that's also interesting. All right. So that's going to be that. This is Matt Bigelow coming at you from Tokyo, Japan with the first AI podcast, Japan AI podcast, episode one. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to like and subscribe and do all that jazz. Until next time, see you next time.